And we'll read the first eight verses. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Adam, would you lead us in prayer? We began last week to look at this very wonderful fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And we saw that Romans 4 actually centers around one person, and that's Abraham. Uh, there's a little bit of an aside here, and we're going to look at this today, Lord willing, on concerning David uh, in verses 6 through 8. Uh, but by and large... Paul centers his attention in Romans 4 on Abraham. The way Abraham was justified, the, the time that he was justified, when was he justified? Was it before he was circumcised or after? Um, the uh, example of his faith, the nature of Abraham's faith. What was, what's saving faith like? What's it look like? What's it believe? What is the content of it and so on? What's the object of it? Uh, and also, he takes up the whole issue of who are the real children of Abraham? And what does it mean to be part of the promise that was made to Abraham? And so, all of this uh, in chapter 4, and it's really incredible as you begin to get into this, just how much Paul, how much sheer truth and revelation and understanding Paul gleans from the Old Testament account concerning Abraham. It's extremely important. This verse that he looks back to in Genesis 15, extremely important for an understanding of um, our faith and the way we're saved. And so I trust we'll see this as we go along in Romans 4. Last week we started to look at verses 1 to 5, 
And we saw that Paul brings up the case of Abraham, first of all, to prove that this gospel that he's preaching, the gospel that he uh, begins to introduce back in chapter 3, he wants to prove that this is not some innovation on his part, some new thing that he's come up with, where the Jews would say, well, wow, you know, this is you're introducing something new that nobody ever believed before. You see, in the realm of religion, new things are by definition false. That's basically the case, unless it has some continuity in some way. When somebody comes along and says they've got new light on something that nobody ever believed all down through church history, you might as well rule them out. Because if something's true, the Spirit of God has been showing that all along. And if it's true, and we'll get into this, if it's true, uh, it, it, it has to do... It goes back ultimately with the character of God. Now, a lot of things are new in the New Covenant, but the basic reality of it is still all there. It was all there way back in the days of Abraham, you see. And so Paul, it's important to Paul that he uh, makes it clear that his gospel that he's preaching is not some kind of novelty. It's not some new thing. It's the way people have always been saved, and that's why he brings up the case of Abraham, first of all. Uh, even in Old Testament times, no one was ever saved by their own goodness. They were never saved by works, but solely by grace through faith. And if you wanted to just uh, say it a different way, you could say it like this. Not only is there only one gospel for all men, Jew and Gentile, but there's only one gospel for all time. Old Testament and New Testament. And that makes sense because there's only one God. And He hasn't changed any. And so the way of approach to God has not changed. Um, there's only one God who really exists, and that God has a character, and that character is absolute holiness. So the problem is, how can I approach unto God as a sinful person? And that's why Christianity is so narrow, because reality is narrow. You may like to believe in that frog worship in Malaysia will save you, but the fact is, frogs can't take away your sins. And the God who really is there has to have your sins taken away before you can come into His presence. You see, reality is narrow. And so, uh, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, one way of salvation. Always has been. One way of salvation from the very first person who was ever saved to the last person who, who will ever be saved. There's only one gospel, only one good news as to how men can be saved. Well, how then was Abraham justified? Not by works, but by faith. And how do we know that? Paul quotes the Old Testament to prove it. He could have said all kinds of things, but unless he could go back and prove it from the Old Testament, it wasn't going to mean anything to a Jew. So he goes back to uh, the passage in Genesis 15, verse 6, and he quotes it in verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Well, the Scripture says Abraham believed God, and that's the way Abraham was justified, through believing, through faith. Now, this is kind of old hat for us, you know. Well, of course, nobody's saved by works. You've got to be saved by faith and so on. But I'll tell you this. The reason that we don't, we're don't, we not shocked by this, we don't realize that Paul was going right square in the face of what the Jews believed when he said this. 
Now let me prove it to you uh, from some quotes. First of all, the Jews believed that Abraham was justified by works. That's what they believed. Let me give you a couple quotes. This is from the prayer of Manasseh. It says, Therefore thou, O Lord God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. Now they got a little bit of it right anyway. But let me just go back and give you this, just picking out the words. Thou hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, who did not sin. Isn't that amazing? That's what they taught. Here's another one from the book of Jubilees. Quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord, and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now let me pick out the words. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. Perfect in all his deeds and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Isn't that incredible that you could read the Bible? I mean, you read Abraham telling about Abraham telling Sarah to lie and all the stuff that he did and the situation with Ishmael and all that. And they read all that and they say he was perfect in all his ways. Now, um, you see here the mentality. And it's the same mentality that the rich young ruler had. He comes up to the Lord Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember the Lord, what's obvious in that? The obvious thing is, is he's throwing around the word good much too freely. He doesn't have any idea what goodness is. And that's exactly the way it was with these Jews who were saying that Abraham was perfect and never had any sin. They didn't know what goodness was. They had no idea. I mean, it's blasphemy to suggest that Abraham was perfect. If you know anything at all about your own sin, you know that that is absolutely impossible. And so the Lord says to that rich young ruler, why do you call me good? You don't have any idea what goodness is. There's nobody good but God. He's not saying I'm not God. He's saying, do you realize what you're saying when you call me good? Why do you talk to me about what's good? You don't know what it is. So the Jews believed that Abraham was justified by works. That's the first big hurdle. But secondly... They used even this verse that Paul quotes to prove that Abraham's faith was the basis of his justification, that he merited salvation through his faith. Now let me give you a quote on that. Our father Abraham became the heir of this and the coming world simply by the merit of the faith with which he believed in the Lord. As it is written, he believed in the Lord who counted it to him as righteousness. By the merit of the faith. You get that? They had no concept at all of faith as trusting someone else for your righteousness or your salvation. They thought of faith as a good work that you did that gained God's approval. In other words, according to the Jews, this verse that Paul quotes here means this. Abraham was such a good man 
and such a believing man that God looked at that and on the basis of that he justified him because he had so much faith. That's the way they understood it. And amazingly, that's the way a lot of people in our day think that people are justified. God used to you know, have the standard of the law, perf- perfection, but now he's got a lower standard. You just b- believe, you know, and he'll look at that and he'll count that as if that was good enough. That isn't it at all. His standard is absolute, 100% perfection, perfect righteousness in the eyes of the law. That's never changed. The only way any of us will ever be saved is if we have perfect righteousness in the eyes of the law. Now, how in the world are we going to get it? Well, Paul says we receive it by faith. But faith is not the righteousness. Okay? Um, This Jewish idea is exactly the opposite of what Paul's saying here. Why is that? Well, if it were true, then Abraham would have something to boast about. And Paul says that never happens in the sight of God. Nobody ever. Not not when men are in the state that he's just proved in chapter 1, 2, and 3. He's proved that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh. You want to know the truth about Abraham? He was not righteous whatsoever in himself. None righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They've all gone astray. You see, all those things could be said of Abraham. No one in the in this fallen world is ever going to be able to stand and boast in the presence of God. Now, let me just make an aside here. In verse 2, if you have a New American Standard, I don't know how the NIV does this. The the authorized, I think, is the very same as the New American Standard. It puts this phrase, but not before God, as part of the sentence in verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, it all blends that together. I don't think that's the point. I think there ought to be a period after the word about. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And then he just pauses and thinks about that a minute. He says, but not before God. That's ridiculous to think of such a thing. For what's the Bible say? He was justified by by believing. So it's almost like a God forbid or may it never be. That's the statement. It's just a... you know, you, you, you can't make sense out of it in a way in English because it's so compacted. He just hits with that. Now, are you kidding me to think that anybody's going to boast before God? That's ridiculous. Impossible. See, that's the burden here. Well, verse 4 then. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as grace, but as what is due. Now, I've been reading this as grace. If you have a New American Standard, I think... Uh, all of them translated favor. The NIV says gift. Now, there's nothing wrong with the translation favor or gift. That's 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 right. But it's the very same word, grace. And how do you know how to translate something? Well, because you look at the context. And grace is, if you read the word favor or gift here, you miss totally that he's talking about the contrast between grace and works. Salvation by grace and salvation by work. So it ought to be translated grace. To the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as grace or according to grace. 
<clears throat> but as what is due. In other words, when you work, if you merit something, you earn it. You do all these works and God owes it to you that He'd save you. But you see, nobody is ever saved because they have merited it or because God owes it to them in some way. You don't obligate God to save you by believing or by repenting. That doesn't obligate Him whatsoever to save anybody. Um, so grace is the opposite of earning something or deserving something. Verse 5, But to the one who does not work but believes... In him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. He does not work, but believes. Believing, you see, in Paul's mind is not a work. It's the opposite of working. Believing or faith in itself merits nothing from God. The Christian is one who does not work, but believes. That's who the Christian is. He's one who does not work but believes. <clears throat> There's a whole lot of doing and working in the Christian life, but you cannot, and if you don't have any doing, I mean, you say, I believe, but you're living in sin, you're living the way you always did, you're not really a Christian. There's a lot of working in the Christian life, but the working has, the doing has to follow entering into something that's done. And as far as justification is concerned before God, that's done. And you don't do anything, any working in relation to getting justified. You rest in what has been done. <clears throat> I remember that uh, testimony of Hudson Taylor. I think he was maybe 16 or 17 years old, and uh, the family was away, as I recall. Anyway, he picked up a tract. And the words that gripped him, the words that God used, Jesus' cry on the cross, it is finished. Beloved, do you realize your salvation, if you're ever going to have salvation, your salvation is finished. And that finished work is sufficient for you to be saved without doing anything. You rest and receive. You take, you accept something that's been done. Now, if you've got to do something, there's no hope. You're not going to make it. Well, that brings us to where we left off last time, and I want us to look at three things today then in these verses. First of all, this amazing statement that God justifies, verse 5, justifies the ungodly. Secondly, the word reckon comes up down through here. Verse 5, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And thirdly, the word blessed or blessing in verses 6 through 8 and actually it keeps going. <clears throat> blessed. So first of all, God justifies the ungodly. Now these are amazing, wonderful, comforting words. Suppose we had to somehow make ourselves godly before God could justify us. Absolutely none of us would be saved. There'd be no hope for any of us. But this verse teaches that anyone that God saves, He saves them while they're ungodly. Isn't that amazing? 
Anybody that God saves, he saves while they're ungodly. Let me quote Jonathan Edwards on this. He says that God in the act of justification has no regard to anything in the person justified as godliness or any goodness in him, but that immediately before this act of justification, God beholds him only as an ungodly creature. Well, you say, doesn't a person have to repent? Yeah, you have to repent. But when God looks at a repentant sinner, he does not see merit. All he sees is a big mass of guilt and sin that has to be forgiven. See, it doesn't. It, again, the guy that's murdered ten people comes and stands in front of the judge and cries and said, I'm sorry that I did it. That doesn't pay for anything that he did. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal, no respite, no. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. You could cry all day today and all day tomorrow and the rest of eternity. You'll never pay for one sin by crying. There's a lot of people that think I need to get, I need to be sorrier. You know, that would impress God and He would justify me if I was just sorrier. That isn't the way. say, well, don't you have to believe? Yes, you have to believe. But when, when God uh, justifies the man who believes, He does it in spite of the man's ungodliness. When God justifies a man who believes, He does it in spite of his ungodliness. Now, beloved, if we could lay hold of this as Christians, your justification is not based upon your your performance it's based upon Christ's performance do you feel unworthy to be justified you are unworthy to be justified it's not based upon who you are this is where uh, the Roman Catholic teaching on justification goes so far astray uh, what is their teaching well it's it goes like this in infant baptism they say that righteousness is infused into this baby. Whenever they're baptized, righteousness is imparted to them, put inside of them. So they become righteous on the inside, and because of that, God justifies them. You see that? God makes you, I mean, He makes you good on the inside, makes you righteous on the inside, and then He looks at that and He justifies you. Another way of saying it is God justifies us on the basis of imparted righteousness, not imputed righteousness. Or another way of saying it, He justifies us because we're sanctified. You see, that's exactly wrong. Now again, as Christians, if we don't understand this, it's not just talking about this teaching of Roman Catholicism, but it's tr it, it comes in... In the life of a sincere, true believer, the idea that somehow I am looking inside for my confidence of justification. And I am so thankful that God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify you because you're sanctified. He justifies you because of the blood of Jesus. That's the reason. Now every true believer 
will be sanctified. They will be changed and conformed to the image of Christ. But that's not the basis of our acceptance. So that what this means is, beloved, that you can get up in the morning and you may have had a bad day yesterday and you may have failed God in some way, but you can get up in the morning and praise God that you are accepted in the beloved. 100% accepted because of what Christ has done. So I start out rejoicing. God receives me. I can come with boldness into the throne of grace. Because why? I enter into that throne of grace not by my own righteousness, but by the blood of Christ, by His righteousness. That's the reason I have access to God. You know, we, we, are, we get such wrong thinking about this. We can't even thank God directly. You know, you think, well, at least when I'm praising God, you know, that would be acceptable to Him. No, Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. He's, even His thanksgiving to God is acceptable through the blood of Christ. That's the only way. There's so much sin in our prayers it would put us in hell. I mean, it, you don't have to look around for the big things you failed in. You just look at the way you prayed this morning. That's enough to put you in hell if that's the basis of your acceptance with God. The basis of our acceptance with God is the righteousness of another. And that's the reason that He justifies us, the blood of Christ. Now this phrase, God justifies the ungodly, is even more amazing in light of what the Old Testament says. I've given a number of these verses. Let me just go through them again for those who maybe haven't heard these. Proverbs fifteen seventeen. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Anybody that justifies the wicked, any judge that would justify a wicked man is an abomination to God. So the question is, how can God justify the wicked and not be an abomination to himself? Proverbs 24, 24. He who says to the wicked, you're righteous. Peoples will curse him. Nations will abhor him. Now this is exactly what God does. He says to the wicked, you're righteous <clears throat> in my sight. Here's another one. Isaiah 5.23 Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. So woe to those who justify the wicked. The most amazing, Exodus 23.7 God says, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. And here in Romans 4, this is exactly the words used, the same thing. I, God does justify or quit the guilty, the wicked. He justifies the ungodly. So here in Exodus, God says, I will, I'm not ever going to do that Never will you ever find me acquitting the guilty. And Paul says, God's the one that justifies the ungodly. How do these things fit? How can this be? How can this happen? Well, that takes us to the second thing we want to look at here, and that's this word reckon or impute. <clears throat> um, notice, notice down through this passage how many times this comes up. The same word is translated reckon, Count or impute. Now it's good whenever I think a translation translates it the same way all the way down through because uh, 
When we're reading it in English, we need to know that the same word's coming up. It makes the translation sound kind of wooden, but it's better for us to understand Paul's using the same word over and over. And so varying this word around to reckon, count, impute, and so on, uh, we, we, we tend to miss it in English that he's saying the same thing. But let's look at it here in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, counted, imputed to him as righteousness. And again in verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or imputed as righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. He imputes righteousness. Verse uh, 7, <clears throat> blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Actually, verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not impute. Same word, take into account or reckon. The man whose sin the Lord will not impute. So there's such a thing as imputing and not imputing. Now, um, those who have been here very long know that when I'm talking about imputation, I always like to go to Philemon. So let's just do that again. And uh, if you've heard this before, what I would say is I hope that you would be able, if somebody asks you, what's the word impute mean? That you would be able to just turn to Philemon, you'd think of that right off, and you'd say, well, look over here in Philemon. Um, <clears throat> it ought to come to our minds. Philemon, a little book right before Hebrews. And you remember what happened in Philemon. What happened was Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Philemon was a Christian. He had a slave named Onesimus, and that slave ran away, and he became a Christian. And so Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, and he writes this letter to Philemon, and he says, Onesimus is a brother now. He ran away from you, but I'm sending him back. Now, look at what he says. Uh, verse 15, For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You realize the way that Christianity, this is kind of an aside, but the way Christianity destroyed slavery was not by going out and gathering up a big political rally and trying to stand against the might of Rome. The way Christianity destroyed slavery was to undercut it totally. Paul says, I'm sending back a beloved brother. Now, you try to treat him like a slave. You can't. You see, it's destroyed. And uh, in a little while, it works its way out, and the whole practice is destroyed. Anyway, <clears throat> no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him... As you would me. Literally, accept him as me. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? I mean, Paul says, this guy, this is me appearing at your door. That's the very same thing Jesus said. 
said, when you, if you receive, he that receives you receives me. And he that receives me receives him that sent me. Accept him as me. But if he has wronged you in any way, now this is the verse we've been trying to get to. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And that's a little word, impute. Impute that to me. Count it, reckon that as if it were mine. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, Philemon, uh, Onesimus may owe you some money, but if he does, just put that on my account. Charge it to me. I, it's not really my debt, but I'll take it as if it was my debt. I'm going to identify myself with him and take his debt for him. And you put it on my account and treat me accordingly. It's as if I owed you. Let's say he owed you $100. Now, it's, now I owe you that $100. And if he puts it on his account, he really owes it to him now. It's really that real. He put it on his account. All right. He comes to Paul. He says, look, you owe me $100. And he really does owe it to him now because it's been really... In other words, what God did in Christ, He really put your sins. He really imputed them to Him and He really took them as His debt. And He says to His Father, you treat me, so you receive me the same way you would have received that sinner over there, Charles Leiter. Receive me as if I were Him. And you know how God would receive me if I tried to come into His presence? He'd pour out His wrath upon me. And that's what, what He's done for every believer. He took those sins at, that were ours and He imputed them to Christ. He laid them on His account. And He received Him like He would have received us. That's what happened on the cross. And those sins were actually paid for in full. God wasn't pretending, and He doesn't pretend when He justifies you. He doesn't look at you and pretend that your sins have been paid for. He looks at what's actually been the case. It's actually been done. And He makes a declaration on the basis of truth. And He says, He declares you not guilty. Now that's the way. The way that He can justify or declare not guilty a man who's as guilty as he can be is that somebody else paid for his debt in the eyes of God's law. Oh, what a wonderful thing, this thing of imputation. Now, he not only does he impute, how can he not impute my sins to me? Well, he imputed them to Christ. But more than that, he imputes Christ's righteousness to me. He receives me as if I were Christ. Isn't that amazing? He, it, justification is more than the non-imputation of sin to me. It is the imputation of righteousness to me. Christ's righteousness. You know, this idea, I always had this. When I, before I became a Christian, this was actually, I mean, it was like an invisible picture in my mind. I could, I could picture those big scales at the end. And here's my good works and here's my bad works. And of course, my good works outweighed my bad works. You know, I've, I mean, you about have to be a Hitler not to. And the fact is, you don't see that even your so-called good works are filthy rags. 
the nice stuff that you've done is filthy and defiling because it's not done for the glory of God, it's done for your own glory. So even the so-called good works are all over here on this side. (laughs) But it's not going to be your good works versus your bad works. It's going to be you on one side and Christ on the other. The Lord Jesus Christ on the other side. That's what's going to be the test. And your righteousness has to be equal to His or you're going to go to hell. That's the only way anybody can be saved. Let me just read it from 2 Corinthians 5. This is what Paul says. Second Corinthians five and verse um, verse nineteen. Well, verse eighteen. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There's the word impute, not reckoning, not counting, not imputing their trespasses against them. Well, how is it that he has not imputed our trespasses against us? Well, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's that term, righteousness of God. He says the righteousness of God has been manifested. The way that you can be right in the sight of God. Well, going back to Romans 4 then, we understand the flow down through here. God imputed righteousness to Abraham and to David. Um, Verse 6 David speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. We don't have much more, so hang on here a little bit longer. We've already made note of the fact that Paul brings up the case of David here in verse 6. Why does he do that? why, Why did he bring up David? Well, one reason is that David lived right square under the law of Moses. You could say concerning Abraham, you could say, well, yeah, he was justified by faith, but after all, the law hadn't even been given yet. Now, the Jews, actually, they said, well, he kept the law before it was ever given. Kept it perfectly (laughs) before it was ever given. But you could make the case, you could say, all right, he was justified by faith, but that was before the law of Moses. Paul pulls a case out right directly under the law of Moses, David, and he says, look, it was the same way with him. That's one reason he brings David up. Another reason he brings him up is that David was very important to the Jews. You know, the Messiah was the son of David. Let me give you an example. Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, they go all the way back. You know, Matthew goes all the way back. Son of David, son of Abraham. And so it's important here. But I think the main reason that Paul quotes David here is that David's talking about imputation. He's talking about reckoning here in this passage. And that's what Paul wants to get at. You see, God, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him 
as righteousness. Now, somebody could say, well, yeah, his faith was so great. That's what, you know, he was a great man. He was a great man of faith. That's why God imputed that for righteousness. No, he says, Paul says, no, let me, let me show you what impute means. And he goes to David. And here is a guy, there's no question of merit when you get to this passage, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. There's no talk here about merit. He's talking about how in the world can you get your sins taken care of. And it's very clear here that this idea of imputation or reckoning or counting doesn't have anything to do with merit. It has to do with just sheer grace. God imputed righteousness to this man who had a whole bunch of sins. So I think he quotes this passage to show that imputation has to do, that the religion of King David was not a religion of merit, beloved. It was a religion of forgiveness and crying out for mercy. That was the religion of King David. And that was a religion of Abraham, too. It was a religion of forgiveness and mercy, not merit. And notice that this whole idea of imputation, it, it's, a, it's a legal thing. It has to do with standing in the eyes of God. David talks about a man's sins being covered, being forgiven. So he's not talking about internal changes inside of you. He's talking about your standing in the eyes of God, that He forgives you. Just flat out forgives you. So, imputation. Last word, blessing. Verse verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing upon the man whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? There is much more to justification than just forgiveness. You know, suppose you had committed all these sins... And you come before God, and you've got all that weight of sin on you, and God forgives all of them. Now you're to the zero point. And now you've got to be perfect from now on so that you can earn His favor. You see, you'd be just as bad a state as before. There's a whole lot more that happens when God forgives you and when He justifies you than just forgiveness. You enter into a state of blessedness. You come away with a sense, not only has He forgiven me up to the present, but He loves me. He's taken me into His family. He's made me His child. He's smiling upon me. You see, justification is so much more. That's what we said. It's not only the non-imputation of sin. It's the imputation of righteousness. He counts you as if you were His son in terms of his righteousness, your righteousness in the eyes of the law. And so you enter into a state of great blessedness and a sense of adoption and the the joy of knowing that God's smile is upon you now I just want to say a little bit about this and if you've already uh, heard all these things repeatedly and you know the answer immediately don't answer I want those who haven't heard it to think about what is the opposite of blessing What's the opposite of blessing, Tom? Uh, curse. The opposite of blessed is cursed. 
Now when you see what that means, you see the man who is still under his sins is under a curse. As soon as those sins are removed and God imputes the righteousness of Christ to you, you're under a blessing. It's the fullest word you can imagine. There's nothing more wonderful than that. To be blessed. To be blessed. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And in, in the, it's more than just the idea. You see, in the Old Testament times, a person was blessed. Well, they had, you know, like they had a, a lot of physical things showed that showed God's blessing. And you say, well, he was really blessed in that. Well, yes, but this is talking about this is talking about weighty, eternal things. I mean, a guy can have ten houses and everything prospering and everything going wonderfully and still be under a curse. Or he can have little or nothing and be under a blessing in this sense. A wonderful blessing. The smile of God is what it has to do with. Now, a couple passages before we close. Galatians 3. Let's turn to this one. Galatians 3 and verse 8. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, this is very parallel to Romans 4, you see. Paul says the gospel, same gospel back then as now, and the Scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, and what verse does he quote to prove that? Well, this verse here, all the nations, that's the word Gentiles, all the nations shall be blessed in you. That's what justification is, coming under the blessing instead of the curse. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The moment you become a Christian, the smile of God comes upon you and you are in a most blessed condition. I'd rather be the most miserable Christian suffering the most horrible things and have the blessing of God upon me and the smile of God upon me than the most happy, carefree, rich, healthy, wealthy, and wise non-Christian with the curse of God resting upon him. I mean, Christian, you may get into some miserable, dire straits, but I'll tell you this, what a blessed thing to be under the blessing. And we're under the blessing because Christ bore the curse. Now let's look at one more passage and then we'll close. Deuteronomy 28. 
Paul quotes from the Old Testament. If you go back to chapter 27, verse 15, Cursed is the man who makes an idol. Verse 16, Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. 17, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. 18, Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. goes all the way down here. Cursed, cursed, cursed. And then verse 26, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say amen. Have you ever heard anything that sounds like that? Cursed is the one that doesn't do these words of the law. That's the verse that Paul quotes in Galatians 3 verse 10. Cursed is the man that does not abide by all these things that are written in the law to do them. In other words, and try try to get this. The Old Covenant had some blessings and cursings that were just physical things for the Jews. And if you'd, if you'd obeyed God, you could experience the blessings. And they did that whenever they obeyed God. Not perfectly, but I mean when they basically kept the law, they were blessed as a nation. But Paul's saying there's some deeper principle involved here. When you look at it in its total picture, the law is saying, do this and you shall live. In other words, if you perfectly kept the law, the legal principle, you'd have eternal life. But if you don't, you're under the curse. Okay? And this is the verse that he quotes to illustrate that principle. If you want to be really, you're talking about eternally blessed and justified through the law, you're going to have to keep it perfectly. And if not, you're under a curse. But Christ redeemed us, bought us from the curse of the law, that the blessing might come upon us. So what? let's look at some of the blessing. Now, that you realize these things that we're going to read here were based for the Jews upon them keeping the law, in a measure keeping the law, I mean outwardly keeping the law. It's impossible, spiritually speaking, for us to ever keep the law, but Christ has done it for us. So all these things are ours only on a much deeper level than what they ever were for the Jews. All right? Do you understand what we're going to look at? Verse 1 of chapter 28. Now it shall be if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today. None of us ever have, but Christ did. And He paid and He bought it for us. The Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. Now we're reading this spiritually speaking. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. So you're going down the road and what's happening? Goodness and mercy are following along behind you trying to overtake you. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. These blessings will overtake you. And they do overtake the Christian. A lot of times when you least expect it, this grace just comes upon you. You say, Lord, I don't deserve any more. No, you don't deserve any more. You don't deserve any of it. And He keeps blessing you in spite of the fact that you realize more and more how unworthy you are of being blessed. And the blessings overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city, verse 3, and blessed shall you be in the country. 
Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. You know, you've been in the kitchen of a Christian. I mean, just while they're making bread, they're under a blessing. They're under the blessing of God. Life is there in the in their dwelling place. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. John chapter ten. They shall go in and out and find pasture. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and shall flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. He'll bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself. Verse 10, So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. In the offspring of your body and the offspring of your beast and the produce of your ground and the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. And the Lord will open for you His good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to you, to your land in its season, to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and so on. You shall be the head and not the tail. You shall only be above, and you shall not be underneath. These are promises spiritually speaking we're not talking about prosperity materially but spiritually there are promises that we can look to God for these blessings well blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not impute. That's a great, unspeakable blessedness. And that's what every Christian has because Christ bore the curse for him. And his righteousness is imputed to us. Well, let's pray. Lord, we think of how you said that in the ages to come, you're going to show the exceeding riches of your grace upon the church. You're going to demonstrate forever and ever uh, grace beyond anything we could ever imagine. Just to have eternal life, Lord, whoever would be the least person in the kingdom of heaven has an unspeakable blessedness beyond imagination. And, Lord, we think of how you said that these blessings would come upon you and overtake you. Lord, we've experienced that. In spite of our unworthiness, because of the worthiness of Christ, blessings have repeatedly come upon us and overtaken us. And, Lord, we pray that you'd help us today to give ourselves fully, completely to you afresh. Forgive us our sins. Oh, Lord, we want to be more like Christ. We want to live a more holy life. Lord, um, I pray for anyone here today that, that the devil has told them that if they became a Christian, it would be the end of life. Lord, I pray that you'd show them that it would be the end of death.
Lord, we, we pray, have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, praise the Lord. Let's continue our fellowship in the mealtime.